today we are very excited to introduce or to have on the pod uh, Christina Hillsberg. She's a former CIA intelligence officer, don't call her agent, officer, as well as author of Licensed to Parent, How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids. I'm really intrigued to talk to you about that. I'm a parent of four myself. We asked you to come on the pod today because, you know, you, you were count, we're doing the gray man on the thriller pod right now. And we've been lucky to have on a couple different people to voice their opinion. Obviously, we're going to dig into that. But before we get into that, I, don't, I wonder if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners. So walk me through your arc of your career. I was doing a little bit of background. It seems like a very interesting career. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Chris. I was excited to connect with you guys on Twitter when I shared my thoughts on the gray man. So I'm excited to get into that. And I've been listening to some of your recent podcasts and the folks you've had on and, and all of your discussions. We have a lot to talk about. But as you mentioned, I am the author of a book called Licensed to Parent, How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids. And that was a labor of love with between my husband and me. We are both former CIA intelligence officers. We met at the agency and have since left. And I spent almost 10 years there. And the first half of my career, I was an analyst, an intelligence analyst working on Sub-Saharan Africa. And then the latter half of my career, I was working in the director of operations, actually meeting with foreign assets and collecting intelligence and all of the sort of um, tip of the spear, cloak and dagger kind of stuff that you think of when you think of espionage. Um, But I also love the writing part. And I talk about both in our book. And it's really all about Uh, you know, the espionage related skills that we've applied to parenting. And you'd be surprised at how many are relevant because they're really about being well-rounded and security conscious and prepared for anything life throws at you. I mean, the agency is preparing its officers to go out into the field and be able to handle any situation. So the training is, you know, top notch. And the idea is that anything you actually encounter in the field will be easy compared to the training. And so in the same way, we want our kids to be prepared for the real world. And so we teach them things to make sure that they're ready. And, you know, critical thinking skills are so important. And it's, you know, things from the more physical things that you might think of, like how to spot and avoid danger, being prepared for emergencies, but it's also softer skills like persuasion, communication, technology, all of those things that don't immediately come to mind when you think of James Bond. Uh, But they're really applicable and not just for parents, because they're really skills that we think everyone should have. And before you can teach them to your kids, you have to adopt them yourself. And so that's kind of what my life has looked like since leaving the agency. I went into the private sector for a while and worked um, in tech. And now I'm doing freelance writing and writing the book. And so I'm excited to be here to talk about it today. And I always like to share my thoughts on uh, TV and film related to espionage. And I'm always having a keen eye looking at how women are portrayed as a topic I'm really passionate about because I think that it's often been gotten wrong. And I think that we're on a positive trajectory where we're seeing much more accurate representation as far as Hollywood goes. <laughs> we can talk yeah. about accuracy in espionage films. That's a whole topic. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's, I've been wanting to have, you know, the female voice on the pod for a while because, you know, in this, we, we actually have a, quite a bit of our followers, our, our females, and it's you know great to talk to them because I feel like in this industry, you know, or especially in the thriller verse, there aren't that many, you know, female characters, you know, it's all like, and I think it's, it's something you said either on, on Twitter or on your, your bio about how a lot of the stuff, the hardcore stuff that's done in the CIA is not, you know, these action men who have a gun and, you know, are out there like the Mitrap types or the Brad Thor types, uh, not Brad Thor, but the uh, Scott Harvath types, you know, they're people who are, if you if you have to use your gun, then you, you, something has gone wrong, right? Absolutely. Uh, 
And I, I love how you brought up with the, the kids, you know, you think about the training you get, or I'm sure you probably got uh, in terms of, you know, potentially being recruited. Like that's so applicable in terms of just like social media nowadays and how oh, yeah. you have people that can, and can groom and, and, and try to, you know, interact that, that way. It's a whole new level. And that's great that you're one, a voice for that. And two, you know, raising your kids, I'm very conscious of you know, keeping my, trying to keep my kids learn how to use it properly. Obviously you have to use it for, for work, but you know, it's, I don't know, that we could have a whole other pod about social media. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think people think that because we were spies, we must spy on our kids and we must lock everything down. And, and because we must be like paranoid about, you know, technology and people, you know, um, and, the, and the thing is, it's actually the opposite of that. We give them, I think, a lot more autonomy than people realize. And it, really, it, there's a couple different reasons for that. And one of them is, you know, we're coming out. I mean, I think I can still say we're coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, connection with others is so important. And we've been doing so much on through technology. So we want to make sure our kids have access to that. But we also want to be a part of their journey with technology and offer them the guidance so that when they make mistakes, it's hopefully when they're still at home and living with us so that we can help them learn. Because I think so often as parents, we want to just lock everything down. We want to track where our kids are. We want to keep them off of all these apps. But the reality is they're going to find a way to get on them anyway. And there are even adults who are trying to learn what is appropriate to post and what's not. And so we'd rather our kids learn that when the risks are lower and they're younger and they're with us and we can be a part of that process for them than to you know keep them from it. So I really think it's really about giving them that autonomy so that they can learn with us. And right. uh, there are so many different ways that you can apply some of these espionage principles uh, for your kids to really give them that independence. Because really, the thing about espionage, and, and we see it in a lot of these films, including The Gray Man, is that there's a lot done independent independently. And the agency does give you a lot of um, a long leash. I mean, from the get go, you're, you know, writing, whether you're writing for the president as an analyst, you know, day one, week one, or whether you're going out. I mean, of course, there's lots of training, but they do have a lot of trust in you. And you're going out and doing a lot of these clandestine meetings one to one with an asset, you're paying them thousands of dollars, and you're coming back with a scribble on an index card that you're saying is a receipt, right? And you're being trusted with all of this. And so in the same way, we can give our kids that trust and so that they can build that confidence in those abilities. So there's a lot of parallels that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't initially think. <laughs> so we love talking about it. Uh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, if, if you seclude them now, it might even make them want to you know, crave it more later on. Exactly. So, all right. Let's, uh, let's, before we get into women in espionage, I, I want to talk to you about that. Let's, let's talk about the gray man. If you can recap you don't have to read it, but just recap like your your initial thoughts, what you thought of the movie. I want to know, did you see it in theaters? Did you see it uh, at home? So we saw it at home and we really loved it. You know, I think something that both my husband and I try to keep in mind when we see espionage films is that we do suspend <laughs> belief, sure. right? Like we don't expect things to be accurate because there's an element of wanting to be entertained. And I think the ones that we like the most are the ones that have that perfect balance of entertainment with like enough details that we notice and that we appreciate with our backgrounds that make us enjoy it more. Um, there are, of course, you know, the really flashy things that are just terribly unrealistic in some films that, you know, take us away from that. But I thought that The Gray Man did a really great job 
at balancing the entertainment value with some sort of, you know, threads of realism within there. I like to say that if if something were, you know, exactly accurate, there would be some very boring scenes in espionage films because there's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of hours of debriefing an asset in a, you know, hotel room with all the drapes shut and, you know, lots of room service ordered. <laughs> and so I, I appreciate the more exciting Hollywood versions. And so a couple of the points that, you know, I had struck or mentioned in my Twitter thread uh, you know, I talked about the the premise, for example, is, of course, very highly unrealistic that the CIA would have a trained assassin program that turns on its own, right? It's very, like, Bourne sure. fr- franchise-like, but we loved, you know, I loved the Bourne franchise, and I think that we're ready for a new franchise like that, and I found that it had kind of the perfect mix of, like, the Bourne franchise, James Bond with Mission Impossible. And so that's just like a recipe for fun entertainment. And so keeping all that in mind, you know, <laughs> there were a couple of things that I mentioned. You know, I loved the action. But then, like you mentioned earlier, this idea of if you have to pull out a gun or someone else has pulled out a gun, they're chasing you, you're chasing someone, any of those scenes, <laughs> you've done something terribly wrong because espionage sure. should be done in the shadows, right under the noses of foreign governments without them even realizing it's happening. But, you know, we don't see a lot of movies like that. Of course, there are some more realistic uh, spy films that do that really well. But a lot of these, you know, action films, you know, we want the action, we want the entertainment. So, of course, that's not realistic as far as as spy films go, um, but entertaining nonetheless. I noticed they did a great job at terminology in terms of saying chief station or COS. Those are really great references and we, <laughs> we were, the thing is, uh, we hate when people call us agents. And so they called, I think it was Anna de Armas's character, they called her agent. And that's just inaccurate. And they're, I mean, intelligence officers everywhere are just cringing. And, and I don't know, because I know a lot of these films, they are consulting people. And so I don't know if people just make a decision to just do it wrong anyway, just because audiences are so primed to hear agent so-and-so, agent this, right? It kind of sure. invokes something for us. But an agent is actually a synonym for an asset which is the person who we've recruited to spy on our behalf and the person who we're we're actually collecting foreign intelligence from. So if someone is actually a CIA employee, they are always an intelligence officer. But we don't go by like Officer Hillsburg or anything like that. You know, it's never really said in lingo. If anything, uh, we go by, so we would have different names on the system and they're called funny names or pseudonyms. And the idea is that, you know, your name shouldn't be associated on paper with anything you do in case there's like a data leak or something. So you don't want your true name on things. And so a pseudonym is not necessarily, it's not the same as an alias and it's not something that you are supposed to go by. Of course, you have aliases too, but people actually become their pseudos. And I can tell you that I have, you know, friends that I would consider good friends in the building that I can't even remember their real name because you just start calling people by their pseudonyms. So um, that's probably more realistic to call someone like the last name of their pseudonym. But agent, yeah, is just, it's it's cringy, but it happens in every film. So I would love to see at some point an espionage film that does that <laughs> correctly and does it well. And then, then I'd really know they had a consultant and had it right. So that was one of the, the things that I, I noticed. But uh, there were also uh, some other things. So I mentioned the COS, but then also just the role of 
women, I think was really interesting to see. I loved Ana de Armas's character. I loved the uh, funny and playful dialogue back and forth between her and Ryan Gosling. I love that they even made note of how many times she had saved him instead of the traditional you know, storyline that we're so used to of the damsel in distress and the man being the savior. And so I loved that they turned that on its head, but then they also acknowledged it in a really fun way. But then also, I loved the trusting relationship between Six and Fitzroy. And I thought that was just such a great um, representation of the kind of trusting relationships that can exist between an operations officer and their asset. That's such an important part of what we do. I mean, in order to recruit someone to agree you know, to a clandestine relationship with the CIA, there has to be trust there. Um, they have to, you know, really have that foundation to agree to something of that nature. I mean, oftentimes people are doing this at great risk to themselves and their families. And so if that trust isn't there, then that relationship isn't going to exist. And so I thought now, of course, their relationship of trust was, was exaggerated and there were very extreme scenarios that you would not see. But I just thought it was a really great Hollywood version of the kind of trust. And there are assets who have been on the books for decades that still speak very fondly of their first handling officer. And so the way it works is, you know, they're recruited by one officer, but they're not, an asset isn't truly considered recruited until they've been um, handed over to uh, the next handling officer. So the turnover, because otherwise they would consider that person has only agreed to the relationship because of that relationship with the ops officer, right? So they consider the the asset truly recruited after they've been turned over. But even then, assets that stay on the books with you know multiple handling officers over the years still really remember that first person who recruited them. And so I thought like that was really just a great Hollywood version of what those relationships can look like by seeing the connection between Six and Fitzroy. So I really liked that as well. Now, there was some reference to um, Chris Evans' character and how he like washed out of the farm and how he didn't have what it took. And I, I liked that reference because people do wash out of the farm. Now, I haven't heard of people washing out for like psychopathic tendencies. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I mean, you know, if it has happened, you know, I, I shouldn't know about it. I mean, the CIA is, is the best at compartmenting information, you know, and having need to knows. So it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But people do wash out of the farm. They simply don't have what it takes or they self-select out. If you self-select out, then you have a chance to go back down and do it again. If you wash out because whatever reason you just, you know, it wasn't a good fit and you couldn't do it, then you actually cannot go back to get certified. So some people do choose to self-select out before it's over so that they can have another chance because, you know, sometimes things come up, family things, or there could be reasons why people weren't doing well. And so they want to come back at another time. But yeah, I was, I sort of chuckled when it said that, you know, he washed out of the farm. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, do all go through, you know, background checks. So I would hope that someone as psychotic as as that character would not be at <laughs> the agency, but you never know. And I, you know, I didn't say in in my thread though, like the fact that him and what what was the CIA character? Reggae 
um, the CIA character who's also like the villain. His name is Reggae. Is it Reggae Jean Page? He's, he, uh, you know, they both had like the Ivy League connection. And I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, when the CIA started, it was basically, you know, white males recruited from Ivy Leagues. Like, I think one of the phrases is like pale male and Yale. <laughs> so, so that was kind of an interesting nod to that, I felt. Um, but that's really helpful about the book. I, I do want to dig into those. I follow Margrini on Twitter and um, I'm just really excited for him. I mean, seeing a book adapted, you know, successfully, of course, they're going to take their liberty, liberties and change some things, but it also just speaks volumes, I think, to him as a writer. So I'm excited to dive into them. So I, when things come to mind are obviously, you know, Zero Dark Thirty, you have the main character there. You have Homeland, which, you know, the whole series is based off of, uh, I, lo- I love Homeland. I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. As well as, you know, just I think of other you know, I guess side characters in movies we watch, you mentioned like the Bourne series, there's obviously females in that, uh, especially, you know, with Pamela, she's like the, the, not the, she's on the first ones, but later on. Yeah. And then, you know, you obviously have M in, in James Bond, that's not CIA, but you know, spy. So yeah. I don't know, what what is your favorite adaptation or representation of women in espionage? And what do you think of like some of these other things that I've I've, I've mentioned here? So I think that we're on a really good trajectory, just even in the past year that we're seeing a lot change. And so there are a couple of recent examples that I think are really fantastic. But first, I want to talk about the Bond girl. So the Bond girl is like a really interesting case because she's evolved with the times, uh, which I think is something that the Bond franchise has done really well. Uh, but that's really happened, you know, through the decades. But I think the one of the turning points for the Bond girl was in the 90s when Barbara Broccoli took over the franchise from her father. And uh, her first film uh, was in 95. And she actually kind of changed the whole vibe of the Bond girl. She was no longer this one dimensional character based on a stereotype. I mean, you think about the names of the Bond girls alone. I mean, Pussy Galore, um, Honey Rider, Holly Goodhead. I mean, the names are jokes. It's like, what does that say about what we think about the women? And don't get me wrong. I mean, I grew up watching James Bond with my dad. I, I love those films. Um, but I think as a young girl, being a spy never really occurred to me because, you know, she was not James Bond's equal counterpart. And I think when Barbara Broccoli took over in the 90s, that we really started to see that change. And it's interesting to look at it from the time she took over in 95 to present day. I mean, she's the one who is responsible for casting Judy Dench as a female M, although she doesn't take credit for it. She says it was someone else's suggestion, but she was on board. Um, because she knew Judy Dench would do it well. And I think that was a fantastic choice because we're Definitely. seeing um, you know, more of that um, more multidimensional female character. But then really most recently in the latest installment of No Time to Die, I mean, you had multiple strong female characters that were capable and competent in their own right. And so I think that was a really important step in the right direction. I mean, it started conversations of should there be a female James Bond? And of course, you hear lots of different <laughs> opinions about that. And I think, you know, all of the producers and and people involved have said, you know, we don't want to just place a woman in the role of James Bond. She should have her own role. And, and I tend to agree with that. I mean, I think what I don't like is when a woman is just dropped into a role that was clearly written for a man, right? right? Like I would rather something that is original and, you know, for 
a woman and because we are different and it shouldn't be the same character and it shouldn't be written the same because it, it feels more genuine if it would actually be written for a woman. So do I think there could be a female James Bond? Absolutely. Is that something I want? Not necessarily. I, I want to see my own characters, right? And so I think that was a good turning point. But there have also been some really great examples. Um, so the movie The Courier. I think does oh, a fantastic yeah, job with Rachel Brosnahan's character, who's actually a composite of women who played a role during that time period in the Cold War. And it's funny because when I was watching it, I had to like Google on my phone because I'm like, there's no way this character like existed because there's no way a woman was the handling officer in this you know time period. And sure enough, she didn't exist, but there were women who played a role. And there was one woman in particular who actually, um, you know, pushed a stroller in the park and did like brush passes and, and dead drops and things like that. And so they created this character as like a composite, as like a nod to um, some of the women that actually played a role. Now, there are a lot of former intelligence officers who are not happy about that role because they replaced her act the actual handling officer, who I believe was a man named Kiesvalter, who ACIA building is actually named after. And so there are a lot of CIA officers who aren't happy about that character because they did it in place of someone who actually existed. So I can understand um, the, you know, the feelings on that. But I thought that Rachel Brosnan did an excellent job at playing a character and showing, you know, that a woman, you know, was involved in a way that isn't necessarily historical ac historically accurate, but it's very well done. And it's a nod to the behind the scenes roles that women were playing and often don't get credit for. Another one that I saw recently, but I don't, I don't know how recent it is because I think I saw it after it had been out for a little while, but Red Joan, speaking of Judy Dench, that yeah, one is a fantastic it. one and it's very uh, realistic. And she's actually like an older lady and is, has been discovered, you know, like I think she's like in her 80s. And so it's going back and her being a double agent and, um, you know, but she's been living like a normal life for years and then she's finally caught. So it's kind of interesting. And it's told like sort of in flashbacks back and forth. So that's a really fun one. And then, of course, I have to mention the 355, which, you know, came out earlier this year. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think it was a big risk doing like a full ensemble. And of course, I mean, we do you we do um bilateral operations with foreign liaison services. You know, we we will do intelligence operations with, you know, other countries. I mean, that's not something that's, you know, out of, you know, the realm of possibility. But, you know, the countries they're representing and all of the, you know, intelligence officers that are supposed to be working together, that would probably never happen. And, you know, a lot of these spy films, you don't usually see an ensemble. It's usually just, you know, born, bond, you know, is like a one person thing. So it was, I thought it was a big risk that they did all of them together. I thought it was really entertaining. I thought that the critics were a little bit harsh on it. I tended to think that if they were men in the same roles that I think, I think it would have just been received completely differently. Um, yeah. But I enjoyed it. And I, and there's a great quote from Jessica Chastain, which is, you know, how women, female spies have long been viewed as honeypots and that's really in TV and film and that's far from reality. And so I think that was one of her goals is to, you know, portray them more accurate in that sense in terms of capabilities and the fact that, you know, listen, female CIA officers are not using sex to collect intelligence. I mean, that's just the reality 
reality. Like, you know, I'm not saying other intelligence services in other countries don't use that method. They certainly do. <laughs> um, but that's not what the agency does. And, you know, the fact that I think women in female roles are often diminished to being the honeypot and, you know, manipulating someone with sex to get information is really just a disservice to, you know, the, you know, many, many women who have come before me and blazed the trail so that I could have the career I had so that women continue to play a role in espionage. And so I'm I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to see more multi-dimensional characters. And I thought, you know, the gray man was a great example of this with with the female characters uh in that film as well. Yeah. Have you seen Zero Dark Thirty? I did, but it was years ago. Years ago. So like, years I just ago. think about I remember like when that came out and like learning about like the real females who were it was like a huge group of you know all, all, almost all female teams that were tasked to finding Bin Laden and just I don't know I thought that that again Jessica Chastain she she plays the spy pretty well yeah um that was that was very good and then I don't know I I'm a sucker for Homeland I, I thought that oh yeah Homeland yeah you know it's so interesting she's just so terribly unstable <laughs> yeah that's the problem though I feel like that 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 could that I I feel like sometimes that's a trope that they they don't often put that on men that like it, you know, it's, they, they have this like strong female character and then they, they make her, you know, have psychotic breakdowns and, I, yeah. it, I feel like they they landed it a little bit in the end. Making- yeah. I mean, I wish they wouldn't have made her so, um, yeah, so imbalanced. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, it, it does definitely, yeah, it plays on this idea that, you know, women are emotional, women can't handle pressure, they fall apart. And, and, you know, the reality is that anyone who was, you know, behaving the ways that she's behaving, and, you know, would not continue to have a security clearance. I mean, yeah. we go through such stringent, you know, not just a process to get in, but there are like reinvestigations. And, you know, it's, it's a constant, uh, that like you would just would not be able to fall apart like that and 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 act like that because you know the reality is uh you know you have information you are a risk right you could be approached by a foreign intelligence and attempt to be recruited you know at any time and so if you have huge vulnerabilities like that that's a problem how hard was it you know i guess speaking of carrie and she has a kid how hard was it to be a parent and uh, you had your kids while you were in the cia so I became a stepmom while I was at the CIA, and then okay. I birthed my kids when I was at Amazon. Actually, okay. So after that, how hard was it to you know be raising children or have children in your life at you know working for the agency? You know, it's 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 difficult in some ways, but then in other ways, you know, the agency is, can be very family friendly. I mean, there are a lot of tandem couples, which is what we were considered, and you know, that do tours together. And there are a lot of benefits to having you know an international career and your kids going to international schooling and and all these great experiences. So there's like all of that aspect, which is fantastic. But then the reality is that it is also a very demanding job, and it you right. know whether you're an analyst and you're you know in the office late because, you know, if you're doing your work as an analyst, you know, it's classified. So it's not like you can take your computer home and work on it at home, you know, or check your emails, like come home for dinner with the kids and then check your emails afterwards. No, like that's not an option. When you leave the office as an analyst, like you're leaving it all there. Right. And so I think it can be difficult as a parent because there are late nights, specifically if you have a, you know, a timely, you know, issue that you're writing on, if there's, you know, some sort of um, fast breaking issue, or if there's, you know, unrest or elections or terrorism, counterterrorism, those kind of issues tend to be issues that don't go by the traditional, you know, 
work clock. <laughs> like they happen at all hours of the night. So that's difficult. But then on the operations side, you know, you're often having meetings in the evening, you're having work dinners, you're, you know, scheduling all these activities with assets, or you're going to diplomatic functions so that you can uh, bump individuals there and make contacts. And, and so it can be very difficult to juggle. And, you know, I was, so I had the, we call them the bigs and the littles. So I had the bigs who were not big at that time. And then when I had birthed my son, I was actually at Amazon, which was also a difficult place to have a baby and lots of kids. Uh, So, you know, now I'm at home and I'm a freelance writer. So I have a little bit more of flexibility. Well, that's awesome. That's great. So what, what are you working on next? Uh, obviously you, you're doing all these, you know, speaking about, you know, parenting and about espionage. Um, you, you wrote a book. What, what do you have next plan for yourself? Yeah. So I, um, I do speaking events, like you mentioned, and so that's really fun. And I'm also have a couple, um, speaking of TV and film, <laughs> I have a couple um, projects in the works um, that I can't give any more details, but I hope to give details soon. So I have a couple really exciting things that I'm working on with um, some producers with some Hollywood projects. So getting more into that world. And so I'll have to come back on when when that stuff comes out. Uh, Definitely. So I'm excited to give more details. And then also uh, work working on a narrative nonfiction book related to women and espionage and the fight for gender equality at the CIA. And so really diving into the stories of some of these incredible women who spent, you know, 30 some year careers at the agency, you know, going through the decade and going from a time where, you know, women were not allowed or thought that they could handle assets because, you know, they could get pregnant or they have a family, right? But then we got all the way to 2018 where we had a woman, you know, the first female director of the CIA. And, you know, by 2021, we had uh, women leading every single directorate of the agency for the first time. So really digging into that story and, um, you know, making it come to life with some of the real female spies that have lived it and uh, celebrating their accomplishments and acknowledging that we have a bit of a ways to go. So yeah, working on that next book and some projects with Hollywood and lots of exciting things. Cool. That's exciting. I guess there's one last question, you know, not even just as a woman, how hard was it to work at the agency? Did you enjoy your time there? I mean, obviously you speak well of it, but. I loved it. You know, it was a fantastic career. We left because of our custody situation with the kids at the time. We weren't able to go overseas again and bring them with us. And so we didn't want to do a tour apart from them. Uh, But to be honest, I think I had always envisioned leaving one day. And so I just didn't know under what circumstances because I just had you know, visions that I would be doing other things. It can be a very restrictive lifestyle. And so, you know, the things that I'm doing now, I feel are give me a lot more opportunities to be creative and to write creatively. And so I'm thankful for that. So I kind of always envisioned leaving, but I lived and breathed it for almost 10 years and it was very rewarding. You know, obviously everyone is very mission focused, which, you know, is a fulfilling type of career to have because you really feel like you're making a difference both for your country, but I also often felt that I was making a difference on some of the African countries that I was covering because I was, you know, educating our policymakers on that part of the world. Uh, which I think is just so important so that we can support fledgling democracies and looking for ways that, you know, the U.S. can, um, you know, help and intervene and engage and just different opportunities there. So I loved it. It was a great place to work. I mean, I think, you know, I have lots of colleagues who are still there and I'm thankful that they're there. You know, it's a job that, 
you know, you're not recognized for your successes, but you're definitely known for your failures. You know, sure. there's like a phrase of there are policy successes and intelligence failures, <laughs> right? If it's a failure, it's the intelligence community's fault. But if it's a success, it's because the policymakers had great policy, right? So it's it's definitely not a career that, you know, you're able to share what you've done. And so it was definitely a transition as well to go from that lifestyle in the shadows to then talking more publicly about what I did there. So that was a bit of an adjustment. Um, but yeah, I'm glad I was there. But I, I really think that, and especially since becoming a parent, I realized that, you know, our life is kind of full of all these different chapters of different careers that we can have and and things that we can try out. And there's never just a like, we've arrived and we're just going to stay there. I think this generation especially is different from our parents' generation where they got into one job and they were just there for, you know, until they retired. And, you know, people are doing things differently and we have an opportunity to, you know, try different things. Did I ever think that I was going to, I was a fitness instructor for a little while after I left Amazon and um, for, you know, moms with babies and strollers. Did I ever think I would do that? Not in a million years. Did I ever think I would write a parenting book? Absolutely not. <laughs> and, you know, and so it's just, you never know what opportunities you're going to find in life. And so it keeps things interesting. Definitely. I guess, I don't, I don't know if you're able to tell me, but how, how did you specialize in, you know, in, in Africa? Like what, what, what led you down that road? So I studied Africa in college. I had okay. I'd grown interested in it in high school and I knew I had a knack for foreign languages. And so I studied Swahili and Zulu and then actually spent some time in Tanzania. And so that was actually how I fell into my agency career. And so sometimes you were lucky and you worked on a part of the world that you actually came with that expertise. But sometimes, you know, you might be recruited for one, you know, area of expertise or language you have, but, you know, you're surged to some other part of the world because that's what the mission requires and that's what they need you for, right? And that happens more often than not. Uh, so I was very lucky that my time as an analyst, I was always on Africa and, you know, I loved it. I think it's a different breed of people at the agency who work on Africa. I mean, both on the analytics side and the operational side, like we, we just, we bleed it. Like we just love it. It's people who love the continent and um, you just don't see it in the same way. And I don't know, I'm probably biased. And so, I, but I was just really lucky to work on that part of the world and to travel there a good bit. And um I miss it. I don't. I don't get there much these days. But as soon as my my littles are old enough, I plan on I plan on taking them back. So, it'll be fun. Awesome. I you know always in these books or movies, uh, you know people are approached for the, by the CIA by someone you know walking in a coffee shop. Like, uh, how were you approached? Did, did you just get a letter in the mail from the CIA? Hey, we want you. Uh, so I was recruited off my college campus. There was a okay. re recruiter who came. Welcome to Starbucks. I, I did not know that he was a CIA recruiter. My professor had just said, hey, some government agencies come in. They're looking for... Uh, the State Department? Yeah, they're looking for people with foreign language capabilities. And so I sent like my resume, which I mean, I was in college. I don't even know what all was on it. Not much. I hadn't even really lived life. <laughs> but I knew two African languages. And so that caught their eye. And I initially blew off the interview. Um, I was in Chicago seeing Ladysmith Black Mombazo with my Zulu class and um, who are just fantastic. And so I decided not to drive back. It was like a four-hour drive. And I lied and said that I had car problems. And then <laughs> when I was an hour outside of town, I actually had car problems. So it was like everything my mom had always told me, like, don't lie. You know, it will bite you in the ass. <laughs> like she was absolutely right because my car broke down an hour outside of my college town of Bloomington, Indiana. And um, I ended up getting back and the recruiter called and said, hey, I'm going to stay an extra day. I really want to meet with you. And thank oh. goodness he did because I had completely blown it off. 
And I end up meeting with him and he tells me when I go in to meet him that he's from the CIA. So I literally find out in the meeting that I've not only am I meeting with CIA, but I've already blown off the CIA. And so I'm in there. I am not prepared. And thankfully, we just really hit it off. And when he told me, you know, that I would have an opportunity to use my foreign languages, to travel to the continent, to inform U.S. policymakers. And what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're doing intelligence analysis, you're not telling the president what to do. You're laying out, laying it out objectively, and right. you're talking about what the opportunities are for the U.S. and what the implications are for the U.S. And then the president and other policymakers make those decisions. And so having an ability to influence policy, right, not not prescribe policy, but influence is is a pretty amazing opportunity. And then, of course, you know, meeting with assets and all that is pretty fun, too. Did you find, you know, often another thing in these books is that there's always these, they often make the politicians like the secondary villains, you know, that uh, you have like your, your main villain, either in the Middle East or Russia, China, whatever. And then politicians are, are the secondary villains. Did, did you find the, you know, the bureaucracy, the red tape, your interactions with different politicians? I mean, I, if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to, but like, how, how was that aspect of your job? Well, I think, you know, we're expected to be, you know, neutral because we work for whatever administration there is. And so, I mean, having worked for more than one administration, I can tell you that it doesn't really get very, I mean, it doesn't really get very political. You definitely have to deal with, you know, um, more, we, we would call them customers, more difficult customers than others. Um, sure. but we try really hard to stay neutral. And of course we're governed by like the Hatch Act and things of what we're able to say at work. And, and that's taken really seriously, but there are definitely more difficult customers than others. Um, because you know, you get taskings and things like that. And so people certainly have opinions, but I think it becomes less of a, an issue than you would expect just because we're, we're so just like focused on our mission that we try to sort of tune out the noise of like the politics. Now, I say that with a very big caveat of like, I was not at the CIA during the last administration. And I think that that was a completely different ball of wax. And so I sure. can't speak to what it was like there. I have certainly heard some things that I won't repeat. And I know plenty of people who have um, chosen to leave. <laughs> but um, But we tend to try to block out as much of that noise as we can. Stay focused. Nice. That was a good answer. Uh, we like to end the podcast by just, you know, asking what's the latest thing you've either watched, obviously the gray man or, you know, w what are you consuming in book wise and any sort of recommendation you can give uh, our, um, our listeners. Oh, let's see. That's a really great, um, really great question. So uh, I recently read David McCluskey's new book, Damascus Station. Oh, I, I, was, I meant to ask you that question. Damn it. <laughs> good yeah, thing you brought good. it up. We and, had him on the podcast. So Yeah, he's so great. He's a friend of mine. And I'm really looking forward to his next novel. And I got a sneak peek and it's so good. <laughs> so I'm really looking book. forward to that. And his first one was fantastic. And then also Karen Cleveland is an old, um, a former colleague of mine. We actually went through analytics training together and her new book is out. And so I've just ordered it and it hasn't come. I think it's called The New Neighbor. Okay. Is that, I don't know I'll if that sounds right. So her first one was called uh, Need to Know and was just an amazing New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Her new one, it just came out, I think last week and it's called The New Neighbor. So the waiting neighbor. for that All to right. arrive. Uh, so she's a fantastic writer as well. And then uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Alma Katsu. 
She's also a spy thriller writer, and uh, she has one out called Red Widow. And I believe she's working on the sequel. So I've read those recently and looking forward to like next books. Those are authors that I'm always following in this genre in particular. Yeah. What did you think of the CIA uh, depiction in McCloskey's uh, Damascus Station? I liked it. I thought he did a really good job. I mean, you've seen a lot of the... um, the feedback that people are like surprised that he got away with some of the things that he got away with, some of the terminology. And, and the thing is when you read something that's by, you know, an actual former CIA officer, you know, I can tell because the details are just like so fantastic and like woven throughout. And it's even like little details that like, I forgot until I read it again. And I'm like, Oh yeah. So he just does a really great job of weaving in um, some of those realistic nuggets cool all right well thank you for coming on the pod this is great talking yeah absolutely thanks for having me 